Let's open our Bibles to the Epistle to the Romans in the 10th chapter. Romans chapter 10. We've been away from the Epistle for a while. We are returning and let us pray and trust the Lord to uh, lead us through this Epistle and all that it has to declare to us. I'm going to read to you the five verses that open this 10th chapter. And that is what we'll deal with this morning to reposition ourselves in the epistle and remind ourselves of where we've been and where we're going. Romans chapter 10, the first five verses. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Amen and amen. Amen. Let us remind ourselves that before you get to Romans 10, there are nine chapters in front of it that you should have learned something from, so that when you get to the 10th chapter, it's not all that difficult. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8 briefly and look at the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Condemnation has been lifted and taken off of some. Those some are described as those that are in Christ Jesus, and the evidence and character of those people is that they don't walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. All of us fail and fall into the flesh from time to time, but we are not habitual sinners or walkers in the flesh. We are, by God's grace, habitual walkers in the Spirit. And it is the temporary and infrequent times that we fall into our flesh. No one walks after the Spirit without the flesh while on this side of heaven and glorification. But that's not my point. My point is that condemnation, which has been described from the first chapter on, has been lifted. And we saw that condemnation was lifted by the obedience of one in Romans chapter 5. For as by the disobedience of one many were made sinners, even so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And this lack of condemnation or this freedom from condemnation is justification. Justification is better than some describe it as just as if I'd never sinned. We want to define justification the way the Bible does. It's just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I had lived Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. And that is what God gives to some that are in Christ Jesus. And we get into Christ Jesus by the predestinating purpose of God. So we come to the 28th verse of Romans chapter 8. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to His purpose. God has a purpose, and He has called men according to that purpose. 
And all things work together for good to those that are in the purpose of God. And here again is a character description of those that are in God's purpose. They are the ones that love God. If you love God, that doesn't get you into God's purpose. If you love God, it's because you are in God's purpose. God has a purpose towards you, and He's had that purpose for a long time, as the next number of verses are going to tell us, in full agreement with what we studied earlier this morning for just a couple of minutes from Titus chapter 1, that God promised eternal life before the world began to us. And so we come to the 29th and 30th verses. It says, For whom He did foreknow, that is God's knowledge of individuals before the world began, that He predestinated them. He determined their destiny beforehand to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. God purposed to have a human family that would be called His children, and He would be their father, and He would show them marvelous things for all eternity as they inherited the universe with Him and His Son. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. And here's a chain of sovereign grace, as we describe it, that extends from eternity past into the present and into the future. And the apostle is able to use the past tense even for the verb glorify, Hear that they are glorified because in the purpose of God, it's as good as if they were already glorified because He has committed Himself to their glorification. And that is when we shall truly be like our elder brother, the firstborn in our family, the Lord Jesus Christ, when we will be fully conformed to His image and be free from even the presence of sin. What shall we then say to these things? What is there to say? If God be for us, Who can be against us? Here is how certain it is because God has committed the greatest price to this transaction possible, and that is the death of His own Son. In verse 32 it says, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Amen. Amen. So who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Notice in the language, before we even get to chapter 9, and we often think of chapter 9 as being one of the strongest statements in the Bible of God's sovereign choice in our salvation, that it's well established before we even get there. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who can condemn? It's Christ that died. But better than just dying, Christ is living. And Christ is living as our high priest and mediator at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, is what that 34th verse tells us. Now these Roman saints endured a great deal of persecution and opposition from the Jews and the Gentiles and the Roman government. And so the apostle would put in here in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, and those were all real threats to them. They are not threats to you at all. But understand that people to whom they are a real threat, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can Nero Caesar separate the believers in Rome from the love of Christ? No. No. In verse 36, quoting, it says, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Some of God's people, while in this world, have looked 
to be forsaken by Him. But they're fulfilling Scripture. Nay, in verse 37, all the things listed in verse 35, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. No matter what Caesar and the Roman government does against us, no matter what the Jews might conspire against us, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. We shall never be separated from His love. And Paul concludes the chapter by declaring his persuasion that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, Roman government again, nor powers, Roman government again, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we get to Romans 10, we got to get through Romans 9. Before we get to Romans 9, we got to get through Romans 8. And before we get to Romans 9, the last thoughts that we have given to us in Romans 8 are glorious statements of God's sovereign choice of us in salvation. It declares God's election of sinners. It declares God's predestination of sinners. It lists from God's foreknowledge of individuals to their glorification that it's all of God. And if God is for us, no one can be against us. No threat of life or death, no principality or power, no angels, no one, no creature can separate us from God's love. Who shall lay anything to the charge of those people? Now when we come to Romans chapters 9 through 11, we have a slightly different section of the epistle. The epistle is 16 chapters long. The first eight give us the doctrine of salvation. Romans 9 through 11 deal with the gospel and the reception of it by Jews and Gentiles and what made the difference between them and some historical and present considerations that the apostle wants his readers and for us to know. And that's what we're going to be learning. These three chapters are about how the Jews, for the most part, rejected the gospel and how the Gentiles were the greater number of believers of the gospel and what that all means in the scheme of God's dealings with Jews and Gentiles. And then chapters 12 through 16 are five chapters of miscellaneous duties of how we can please the Lord more perfectly and how we can be moved by the mercy described in the first 11 chapters to give our lives a living sacrifice to Him. Amen. And He gives us the details in how we can do that from matters of liberty to paying taxes to the Roman government. And it's quite inclusive of what we should be doing once we know that we've been saved. The Lord has things for us to do. But here we are, Romans 9. And these nine, these three chapters that begin with 9 are dealing with an issue about the Jews and why the Jews, for the most part, rejected the gospel. And Paul's going to explain all of that. He starts off very gently, and in five verses we have a wonderful salutation where he describes his great burden and desire for the salvation of Jews. Without qualifying yet. We should already understand from Romans chapter 8 that the only Jews he would be desiring and praying and burdened for their salvation has to be the elect Jews of God. The Apostle Paul would not set himself in opposition against God by desiring or being burdened for the eternal life of those that God had purposed not to give eternal life to. So we already know, and we know because we know the rest of the New Testament and what it teaches, but we're just looking at Romans 9 right now, that Paul had great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart 
for his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he goes on to describe their natural blessings as being born Israelites, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says in verse 4, to them pertain the adoption. Those, those were the people of God that God adopted out of this world. The glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, they're the ones that were at the base of Mount Sinai and God gave His law too that would separate them from all nations. The service of God, they had the tabernacle in the wilderness, they had the temple of Solomon and Zerubbabel, they had the promises, whose are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the beloved friends of God, were the fathers of this nation, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. The Messiah came out of this nation, and it, Paul then says by the Spirit, about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is over all. God, blessed forever. Amen. That's his salutation. Now, he's going to make a statement, since he has warmly set up his Jewish audience and readers with those kind words of the first five verses. He says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Looking at those promises of the Old Testament, the promises made to the fathers, and looking at the rebellion by the most part of the nation, it looks like the word of God hadn't, hadn't taken much effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And this was one hard statement, and this is a statement you never want to forget, especially in Romans 9, 10, and 11. There is a division to make here among the Israels. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. There is a superset of Israel, being the natural Israel, the national Israel, the children in a fleshly way of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there is an elect Israel, a spiritual Israel, a covenant Israel, that God looks at as His true people. The one category is only His people by external circumcision and birth certificate. But the other Israel are His chosen people. They are the children of God. They are the elect of Romans chapter 8. They are the predestinated of Romans chapter 8. They are the ones in whom there is no condemnation because they were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. Romans 8.1 For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Very important verse. It can hardly be said too many times as you enter these chapters. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Not everyone that claims to be an Israelite, not everyone that circumcised, not everyone that has Abraham as their progenitor is a child of God. And that is what is under consideration because, verse 7 says, neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. Well, if they're the seed of Abraham, they are indeed the children of Abraham. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. The seed of promise. The true children of God come through Isaac, not through Ishmael and not through Abraham's other six sons. That is... Here's the explanation. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. There are children of God that came out of Abraham and they didn't come through Hagar. They came through Sarah who gave birth to Isaac, the only begotten son of Abraham who was the father of eight sons. That is the expression used in the Bible about Isaac, the only begotten son. How in the world could he be only begotten when he's one of eight? Because he was the only one born of promise. He was, only, he was the only one born of a miracle. He was the only one that came through the right woman, Sarah. 
For this is the word of promise, verse 9, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Not your efforts to make a son by the flesh through Hagar, but I will come. I will do this. This is my work. I make children. I'm the one that foreknows and predestinates and calls and justifies and glorifies. It's if God be for us, who shall be against us? When we do things in the flesh, they don't result in the children of God. But when God does things, it results in children of God. Now, if someone was not moved by the fact that Abraham and his eight sons only had one that was a child of God because of the problem of having three different women involved, Sarah, Hagar, and Keturah, the apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we spent much time on this, and so it's just a review right now, wants to bring up the next in the family that gives us a great illustration of election. The doctrine has been introduced, it's been defined, and now it's being illustrated in the family of the patriarchs. Verse 10, and not only this, not only did God make a distinction among eight sons of Abraham through three women, here's a better one, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, not just Sarah, but Rebecca conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. This time there's not three women involved. There's only one woman, but there are twins. You could not get any more specific about election if I gave you a month and lots of food to come up with something than this. This is unbelievably plain, if you'll see it. When you've got the right woman and the right man, but now you've got twins in the belly of the woman, and God makes a choice between the twins, there is a very strong statement being made about God's electing grace, and God's choice, and God's predestination, the destiny determined beforehand for both of these boys. They had conceived by one. Isaac and Rebekah came together, and she conceived twins. And we have in parentheses the 11th verse. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, though both responsible for Adam's sin, because remember, by the time you get to chapter 9, you've had to read chapter 5. But he's ignoring that point right now because the doctrine of representation is not part of his thinking right now. It's looking at the two of them. They are both equal in Adam. They are both equal in their works because neither of them have done good or evil yet in their own capacity. Right. What a statement. The children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Esau is going to be born first. Esau is going to be the firstborn. Esau is going to be the preeminent one. Esau is going to be the strongest one. But he is going to worship. He's going to serve Jacob. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's a quotation from Malachi chapter 1, the first five verses. If you go there, the Lord will say that he hath indignation forever against Esau and his descendants, the Edomites. Now, having stated the doctrine, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Having illustrated the doctrine. Remember all these good days that we had in Romans chapter 9? Having illustrated it, now he's going to prove it theologically about the character of God. 
Did God do anything wrong? Because He knows the questions that will arise in some minds, and we don't want those questions to arise in our minds, because we're going to get to a verse very quickly that tells us, you don't have a right to ask questions. Right. What shall we say then? Verse 14. If not all of Israel is Israel, and God's made promises to Israel, but He only intended those promises for some of Israel, and if He proves that and illustrates it in the life of Abraham's eight sons, and if He did so in the twins of Isaac and Rebekah, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there unrighteousness with God? See, some will come along and say, all that we have in Romans chapter 9 is a difference in nations. Well, if all that we have in Romans chapter 9 is a difference in nations, then what unrighteousness is there? Because no one has a problem with a difference in nations. The difference in nations has existed anywhere you looked at any time in the history of the world. This is not dealing with the history of nations because it is described as the difference between children of the flesh and children of God, back up there in verses 6 through 8, and it's shortly going to tell us that it's the mercy and compassion of God that is under consideration, and it's shortly going to tell us that it's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, and it's shortly going to tell us that those that are under the wrath and judgment of God versus those that will enjoy the riches of glory forever. And then Paul's going to say that he's in that group, even us whom he hath called, the saved from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. This is dealing with eternal life. Is there unrighteousness with God for God making choices like this in the human family? If you say, well, those twins, those twins, they hadn't done any good or evil. That is why I spend so much time on Romans chapter 5 and the doctrine of representation that is taught there, the doctrine of federal headship, the doctrine of original sin. Don't you ever forget that. Those two boys were both in Adam. And they were both condemned by the first Adam. And if either of them is going to be saved by the second Adam, it is God's choice to put them in that second Adam. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for putting us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Thank you for promising eternal life to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Thank You for inscribing our names in the book of life before the world began. Thank You for ordaining the Lord Jesus Christ to come and die for us before the world began. Thank You for beginning construction on heaven before the world began. Thank You for putting Your purpose and grace in us in Christ Jesus before the world began. What shall we say then? And you know what? Most of the world wants to say that there is unrighteousness with God. I have heard this a number of times, and when I hear it, it makes my skin crawl, but they say it to their own damnation, possibly. If God is like the God you described, I don't want to have anything to do with Him. Then go ahead and have your God. I'll take the God of the Bible. I'll take the God of the Bible that already knew that you were going to say something that stupid. And so he asked the question by his apostle, is there unrighteousness with God? And here's his answer. He doesn't say, I'm sorry that you misunderstood me. I'm sorry if I was a little harsh talking about those twin boys. Let me back up and retrace my steps to make it a little more palatable. Let's let the praise band run for 10 minutes so that I can get you feeling happier, and then I'll come back and explain it in a, with a different set of words. God forbid! Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. 
We damned ourselves. Why do you blame God for not saving all of us? He shouldn't have saved any of us. If you were God, no one would be saved. I can promise you if I was, no one would be saved. But that's why we're not God. And if you think I'm worse than you are, look in the mirror. There'd be no one saved if you were God. If we treated you the way that we have treated God, and you had the sovereign power of Creator like God did, you wouldn't save anyone. And so the apostle, after knowing that that question is going to come up in the hearts and minds of men, and he answers it with God forbid, by the inspiration of the Spirit, realizes that he ought to move on to gentler subjects and and stop provoking these people to wrath. So he says something gentle like this, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. I love our Bible. Whenever I see those rhetorical questions, and you should be the same way, when you see the rhetorical questions like verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness of God? You should get a little excited. Something's being discussed that is a mystery. And by a mystery, I mean, I do not mean that it cannot be understood. By mystery, I mean that the natural man cannot figure it out. It is contrary to his way of thinking. But God is revealing special truth to us. And so you should get a little excited. And so then Paul starts quoting from Scripture about God's choice in showing mercy to some and compassion to some and not to others. And it doesn't matter who wants that mercy or who thinks they want it. It doesn't matter who runs for it. Human effort, human will, human decision is not involved in it. It's God's choice. It's God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. He hardened Pharaoh. He showed mercy and compassion on Moses and the children of Israel. Another question pops up, verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? Why does God hold Pharaoh responsible and accountable for what he did in Egypt in saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? How can God hold him accountable if God hardened him? Makes logical sense to the natural mind. My mind says that there should be an axiom of geometry that says that if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh's hard heart got him drowned in the Red Sea, that how can God hold Pharaoh accountable when God did it? I mean, that's the way the natural mind works. Are you with me on all that? I I love the Bible. It asks the questions that we know skeptics want to ask, and that it answers them. Why doth he yet find fault? Why does God find fault with Pharaoh and with others like Esau? For who hath resisted his will? Since it's God's will, I will have mercy. I will show compassion. I will harden. Long before Moses went back and stood before Pharaoh, he was told, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Who hath resisted his will? He's God. Here's the answer. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? 
it is out of place for you to even ask a question or to criticize God's operation among men. Shut up. Nay, but, oh man. You are nothing but a man and you are out of place to be asking questions. Private, stand down. Blessed God, we love you. And we humble ourselves before you. We know that if it wasn't for your will, we have no will towards you. And we thank you through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are hopelessly lost without your will. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? When you ask questions like that, why doth he yet find fault? Now that sounds like a question. It's replying against God. You don't have the right to do that. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? If inanimate matter is made into some form, does it have the right to object to its fashioner or maker for the way in which it was made? Not a chance. We all understand that. And that is the distance between God and man that the apostle sets forth. And there is no way around this. This is very plain reasoning. It is very simple. But so men, so many want to argue against it because it takes away from them their importance and puts it all in God. And I hope that God has dealt with us enough by grace that we love God to have all the importance and us to have none. Why do some of you love the beach so that you can stand at night next to the ocean and know that you are nothing? And look at the sky and see that you are nothing without His choice. His choice is what makes us something. And do you know what it's made us? The sons of the living God. Incredible. Hath not the potter power over the clay? This is a question. Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Does the potter have that kind of authority over clay? You say, I believe in the inherent goodness and value of man. This is hard for me to accept. Well, you need to go find a silver lever and get rid of the inherent goodness and importance of man and believe the Bible. We love it just like it says it. He's the potter and we are the clay. This is what it says. It's so simple. He's asking all these questions. They're rhetorical because it's one of the finest ways to argue. The Holy Spirit is behind these words of the Apostle Paul who was quite rhetorical himself and quite a rhetorician. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What is one of the lumps he's been dealing with? National Israel. Is he able to take the lump of national Israel and make some of it vessels of honor and some of it vessels of dishonor? This is hard doctrine for Jews to accept. He's proving it. He's defending it as he comes to these verses. And now he explains it. What if God? All these questions are obvious in their answers. And the question that he's now asking is obvious in his answer. This is what God has done. Does a potter have power over the clay? The word power meaning actual power, the ability to do work. Power in the sense of authority or right to do as he will with the clay. 
Does the potter have that? We answer, obviously. Yes. Okay. Then Paul is going to extend it this way. What if God? Here's God and what He's done as the potter. What if God, willing to show His wrath, willing to show His wrath, willing to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. And that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had afore prepared unto glory. When is afore? Before the world began. He had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, the Roman readers, and the Apostle Paul, even us, whom He hath called, that's from Romans 8.28-30, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Amen. Out of the mass or the lump of the Jews, God chose some to be vessels of mercy on which He would show the riches of His glory. And He left the others under His wrath and power that He might show His wrath and His power in them. He endures them and they are fitted to destruction. Out of the Gentiles, the same lump of the Gentiles, out comes some that He has chosen to be vessels of mercy, prepared aforetime unto glory. Right. Even us. Even us. Even us. It's very personal. Even us. Even us. Who is Paul addressing in this epistle to the Romans? Those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we mark ourselves, if that faith is backed up with the works that the New Testament describes, as being part of God's elect. It is the faith of God's elect in Titus chapter 1 who promised eternal life before the world began. And so verse 24 ends with a question mark, but there's really no question involved except a rhetorical one because you should understand this is what God has done. What if God did this? Do you have a problem with it? What if God did this? Are you thankful for this? Right. Now, the Jews were the ones that were going to be shocked by this revelation. Shocked. They thought as long as they had the right birth certificate and the right alteration to the male anatomy, they were on their way to heaven. Now, he has just said something that blows their minds. God has only saved some of you Jews, and he has saved some of the Gentiles right along with you, and that is his body of his children. If you don't believe it, go check your Old Testament Scriptures and he gives four references illustrating it from the Old Testament. Illustrating election and reprobation of Jews in times past when God identified these are my people and those are rejected within the nation. Four. Two from Hosea, two from Isaiah. And that takes us from verse 25 down through verse 29. And then in verses 30 through 33, the apostle says, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, the Gentiles which had no knowledge of God, they're the ones, many of them, believing the gospel. But the Jews, which had spent their national history in the external worship of God, they're rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. What shall we say to these things? 
Why is this happening? Verse 32. Why is it happening? Because they're not seeking it by faith, but they're putting too much confidence in the law of Moses. For they're stumbling at a stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The Lord Jesus Christ was so ordered in his life and so presented to the nation of Israel that he was a stumbling stone to the Jews unless they were the elect Jews that had their eyes open to see him as the Messiah. He was not what they were expecting. So many times the Lord Jesus would quote the passage from Isaiah chapter 6 about make the heart of this people fat, close their eyes, stop up their ears, lest they be converted. They didn't see anything in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul would explain in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Did God give the Jews what they wanted? By sending a demonstration of visible signs for them. He did, but it wasn't enough for them. Did He give wisdom for the for the Greeks to be converted? No, in both cases. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, those ordained to eternal life, they hear the message of the Gospel, and it is Jesus Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. And that is the difference. And we come to Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. When we look at this verse, there are three things we want to remember at this verse. This verse has been abused so many times. We want to end its abuse in our church. We want to end its abuse in our minds. It is abused this way. Paul wanted to see all of national Israel get saved. He wanted to help them all get born again and go to heaven when they die. That should be absurd to you at your first pass because of Romans 8 and 9. What's he praying to God for? For a class of people that either they're already going to be saved by God's choice of them or they're not going to be saved by God's rejection of them. So what Israel is Paul worried about? And is he desirous toward here in Romans 10.1? He told you in 9.6, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Which Israel is he concerned about? There's three things we want to look at. Paul's desire, the Israel that needs to be saved, and the salvation that Paul's dealing with. The Arminian looks at a verse like this and says, Paul was just a good soul winner like I am. Now, in the weeks we've had together over the last four weeks, looking at a few hundred questions for Arminians, we realize that we've never met a truly sincere Arminian soul winner. Because they all live far too comfortably to even look like they really believe that people are dropping into the lake of fire due to the lack of effort and money on their part. So they look at this. This is Paul as a soul winner trying to get Israel saved, get them saved, get them born again, get them justified, 
And He wants to do it for all the Jews. Because they're His brethren. They're His cousins. And then a sermon is preached about how you ought to get all of your family members saved. That's how they use it. They stretch it across missionary conferences. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is. And that ought to be your heart's desire and prayer. But they don't even know what Paul's heart's desire and prayer was. They don't know what Israel it is. They don't know what salvation it is. They've got three problems in the text. But it's not a problem to them because they have never relied on understanding verses. They love the soundbite that Romans 10.1 gives them. I sound totally unmerciful toward Arminians, and when it comes to studying Scripture, we should be. They'll grab a hold of John 3.16 without a clue about what the word world means. They'll grab a hold of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 without having a clue about what the word all means. They'll grab a hold of 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord is not willing that any should perish without having a clue about who us are in that text. Not will, the Lord is long-suffering to usward. The audience that Peter was addressing as elect beloved brethren. And on and on it goes. You say, how can you argue with the word all? Doesn't, doesn't all mean all? And that's all all means? Do you want to take that position? I'm going to show you some mercy. I'm going to ask you this question. Do you want to take that position? Okay. You're wise. If you take that position, I'm going to ask you to explain how much Adam and Eve got paid in the Garden of Eden for eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because 1 Timothy 6.10 says the love of money is the root of all evil. I'm going to ask you, was the Apostle Paul a practicing sodomite? If you say no, I'm going to remind you that Paul said, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. They don't ever study the Bible. They love their sound bites. That's why they end up with Jesus coming before the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, even though it plainly says, that day of Christ's second coming shall not come except the man of sin come first. Let no man deceive you by any means. You say you're so unkind to them. Was Elijah unkind to the prophets of Baal? And while they're preaching another Jesus, it is another Jesus according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it's just irritating that when we come to a verse like this, they won't make any effort to understand anything about Paul's evangelistic methods. You will never hear an Arminian identify Paul's ordinary evangelistic methods of going to synagogues. The Bible tells us what Paul would do when he went into a new city. He didn't go to the orphanages. He didn't go to the grocery stores to hand out tracts while he bagged groceries. He didn't go to the brothels. He didn't hold up 316 cards in the end zones of soccer stadiums. He went to the synagogues where there were men that heard the Scriptures read to them and believed the Scriptures and worshipped a God, a single God named Jehovah. And to them he preached the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They went out from that synagogue and told family and friends, and that is how Paul evangelized. But they don't care about that. So here we are. Romans 10. There's three things. Paul's desire, the Israel, and the salvation. 
We cannot have Paul in this verse desiring and praying against God's will of Romans 9. And God's will in Romans 9 has already determined those that are going to be vessels of mercy and those that are going to be vessels of wrath. He's already determined vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. He's already determined, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, so that it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, including my good friend the Apostle Paul. It's God that showeth mercy. So we don't have that. So when we look at Paul's desire and his heart, his heart's desire and his prayer, we understand it because the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. So first off, we, we know that it has to be the elect by reading verses chapters 8 and 9. Then, when we do a little bit of comparison in Scripture, we find 2 Timothy 2.10 that says Paul endured, and I'm sure he wasn't desiring and praying for things that he wasn't enduring. If he, if he had such a heart's desire for something, I'm sure that, that is the same thing that he was enduring all things to obtain. And that was for the elect's sakes. If they're elect, who shall anything to their charge? Heaven is guaranteed for them by the work of one, the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. But those elect needed something else, and the context right around this first verse tells us that, doesn't it, Lewis? What did these elect need? They they needed to be saved from ignorance, to the knowledge of the truth, to the acknowledging of the truth of godliness, according to Titus chapter 1, verses 1-4. through Look at verse 2. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So if you read that second verse, what is Paul's desire for them? To teach them something. To show them something. To give them some knowledge. Verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness which is of God. That is what Paul wanted for them. That was his desire. Paul's desire, his methods taught to us in the book of Acts, his statement in 2 Timothy 2.10, the context right here is one thing, and it's all consistent, and this is our position. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer is to find elect Israelites and show them the truth about Jesus Christ so that they might be converted and realize all the benefits that come in knowing the gospel. I cannot put their names in the book of life for God has already done that. God has already chosen them to that. He is the potter and I'm just different clay. He promised eternal life before the world began, but in due times, He has made manifest His word of promise through preaching. I just want to preach to them. And when you look at this whole epistle, in Romans chapter 1, there are ten wasted verses there. And I hope you know how I mean that. There are ten wasted verses between verse 8 and verse 15. The Arminian has only found the 16th verse. He doesn't know that the others exist. He turns his Bible to that place and it's blank. All he can see is the 16th verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's all they get out of it. Romans 1. But do you know what he said in the ten verses preceding that? So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Who did he want to preach to? Those that were already believers. Why? So that we can comfort each other together by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So that I can impart to you some spiritual gift so that you can be established in the faith of God's elect. Why didn't he say something? I can't wait to get to Rome and I hope you people have an itinerary planned out for me for me to get into the Colosseum and pass out tracts along with footlongs. Why wasn't there anything like that? 
Because you want to find God's elect. Because God's elect are excited and they need to know the truth of the gospel. And they want to know the truth of the gospel. And so you use the best means you can to find God's elect. If Paul did not have a synagogue to go to because it was Sunday through Friday, what did he do in the city of Athens? He went to the marketplace where people would gather to discuss new religions and new philosophies because the Athenians would spend all their spare time in learning new things. And Paul would just kind of worm in there and say, I've got a new one. I heard about a man in Nazareth of Galilee of the Jews that the Romans put to death and he rose from the dead. And there's 500 witnesses of him that he rose from the dead and I've seen him. But what do you think that would do at the marketplace? They would stand there in shock. You know, they have somebody over here talking about Epicureanism. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's such a good religion. You know, so so hopeful. So full of hope and blessing for people. Then there's Zeus and Jupiter and all the other ridiculous gods and religions of the Greeks and the rest of the world. And some would stand there This man knows what he's talking about. Come with us. We want to take you to seminary. We're going to take you to Mars Hill. You know know how it happens in Acts chapter 17. Paul gets up in front of them and he lays out the truth of God being the creator of all men, that God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, that in Him we live and move and have our being, and that He's not very far from every one of us. But you ignorant, superstitious Greeks are worshiping an unknown God, and I'm going to declare Him to you right now. He he sent His Son to this world, and He raised Him from the dead to prove this particular fact. He's coming back to judge all of you, and God commands all men now to repent, because in the past He winked at the ignorance of Gentiles, but now He's commanding Gentiles to repent. They laugh Him to scorn when they hear about the resurrection. Some said, we'll hear you again on this matter. But some got up and walked out with him. What made the difference? They were the elect of God. Amen. Does it ever tell us that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Acts chapter 13, Paul's first sermon that's recorded for us in the city of Antioch of Pisidia, across the Mediterranean, not Antioch of Syria, which was his home church, but across the Mediterranean. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Oh, yes. We know what Romans 10.1 is referring to. His heart's desire and prayer was to elect Israel. Right. His heart's desire and prayer was for the elect. You know, when men weren't elect, do you know how he prayed about them? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Right. Here's how he prayed. Let me get all the words there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Well, who has faith? God's elect have faith because God gives it to them. Men that don't have faith, Paul wanted to be delivered from. Why didn't Paul say, Finally, brethren, pray for us and pray for all the lost in Thessalonica, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may get unreasonable and wicked men saved. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I love the truth of the Bible. It doesn't make sense if you don't understand it the right way, or you're going to get saved this week, and you're going to get saved again next week. And you're going to get saved again after that. 
Tony got saved so many times until he heard the truth. I got saved so many times. Listen, I'm a thousand, I'm a thousandfold sure of the book of life. Because I've invited Jesus into my heart about a thousand times before I heard the truth that no one invited Jesus into their heart in order to get eternal life. That was written to a church that needed to have Jesus in a more personal relationship with them who were haughty and proud without a relationship with Him. It's, right. it's referring to fellowship in, with Christ. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. This is elect Israel. This is not non-elect Israel. These are not the vessels of wrath, Israel. These are not the vessels of dishonor, Israel. Or we have Paul praying and desiring against God. No, we don't have Paul desiring and praying against God. This is elect Israel. And then it says they might be saved. What salvation do elect people need from a preacher? What did Cornelius need? Cornelius, thy prayers and thine alms have come up before God. He already feared God. He already worked righteousness. He already prayed and his prayers were heard. He already gave alms and his alms were received in heaven. Cornelius, thy prayers and thine alms have come up into heaven. Now send a Joppa for one Simon who shall come and tell thee what things thou oughtest to do. That is why we need to hear the gospel. That's one of the reasons we hear the gospel is the gospel tells us what we can do to please the God who has saved us. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to elect to, to God for elect Israel is that they might be converted. That they might be converted from their false understanding and confidence in Moses' law. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They don't know the truth that Jesus, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, has put away all animal sacrifices forever. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, oh, they knew God was righteous, but they were ignorant of how to stand justified before that God of righteousness. And going about to establish their own righteousness. See, they understood that they needed to have righteousness in order to be accepted with God, but they thought they could establish their own righteousness. Have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. As soon as a Jew would believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and fulfilled the Scriptures, that put an end to the law of Moses. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. This is turning on the conscience of these people and their lives. This is, there's no change in heaven that takes place when a person believes. The change takes place in their conscience and their lives. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. When was Christ the end of the law for righteousness? 30 A.D. When he died on the cross of Calvary and said, it is finished. That was the end of the law for righteousness from a legal standpoint. But these people, being ignorant of that and not having a knowledge of Jesus Christ, needed to be told about Jesus Christ. And when they would be told, and these elect, for the most part, or should we say, for the some part, because we've got another part blinded in chapter 11, But for those that believed, all of a sudden they are free from Moses' law. 
No longer do they have to keep the sacrifices in order to stand righteous before God. They are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Jesus died the death of a cursed man on a tree for them. Because the Bible had said in Moses' law, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So Jesus had suffered the curse of the law for all their sins, and Jesus had obeyed the law perfectly and given it to them because they were chosen in Christ before the world began. But they needed to hear about Him. And the only ones that would ever believe this wonderful message are God's elect. Because other than that, Jesus Christ was an appointed and chosen stumbling block and rock of offense to the rest of the Jewish nation. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. This is how they were trying to establish their righteousness before God. Moses described it in Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Do and live. 718 commandments of Moses' law. Don't mess up one even once. That's a horrible religion. And do you know that there were elect Jews believing that horrible religion? And the Apostle Paul had the wonderful privilege of sneaking into the back of a synagogue meeting and sitting down with Barnabas. And when they got done reading the Scriptures and had a few minutes left, they said, men and brethren, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? You got a testimony that you'd like to give? Paul gets a smile on his face, a twinkle in his eye. He comes forward, tells Barnabas to lock the back door, and he, get, and he tells them things they have never heard in their lives. That this Messiah that they're waiting for has come and gone. Raised from the dead. And I've seen Him. And there are 500 brethren in Judea that have seen Him and they ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. He is the one appointed by God to be the sacrifice for sins forever. Let me show you what Isaiah 53 really means. And they would unroll their big scrolls as fast as they could and get to Isaiah 53. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken of God and smitten, afflicted. All we like sheep have gone astray. But it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. That is your Messiah. He didn't come on a white horse to throw off Rome. He came on the the colt of an ass to lay down His life for your sins. And He rose from the dead. And He is seated at God's right hand. Can I show you that? It's in Psalm 110. It's in Psalm 102. It's in Psalm 2. It's in Psalm 45. And all those Messianic Psalms? What would happen in that church service? There'd be a division made. There would be a division made. Let me repeat that because the Bible repeats it over and over. There would be a division made. Their own Scriptures fulfilled perfectly, there would be a division made. Some would hate that message of Jesus Christ and want to kill the messenger, Paul. Others would believe, but they were few. But the Gentile proselytes that had to sit in the back didn't have cushions on their chairs. They were Gentile they would rejoice because they were already showing a great deal of election 
for having wanted to come into a Jewish synagogue and count that as their church. Do you know what they had to do to all their males to come in there? Do you know what happened in public baths and showers when Greeks found somebody like that? And those Gentiles would believe. Are you thankful that he took some branches off the olive tree and grafted in some other branches? Amen. According to Romans chapter 11, we should be so thankful that God has grafted some Gentiles in and sent men like Paul who loved the Lord Jesus Christ so much that nothing could slow him down to, to bear the gospel all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum and beyond. And that's Yugoslavia in an older political subdivision map. Another thing I want to leave you with that I'm greatly concerned about do you have the heart's desire and prayer to God for elect in your family, your kinsmen, like you should, and to others that we have opportunity to meet in the marketplace and that we have an opportunity to meet in various ways through our website? Do you have that? We want to be like the Apostle Paul. He wasn't trying to get people saved in the sense of getting their names in the book of life and them saved from hell to heaven. He, was he calls them his kinsmen in chapter 9 in verse 3. My kinsmen according to the flesh. He had elect in his family. And I want you to know that if you read your New Testaments very carefully, you're going to find a number of family members of the Apostle Paul saved. Read it very carefully. I strongly recommend reading less and reading it more carefully than reading more and skimming it. I have, I have a gift certificate for Cabernet and the best mac and cheese in Greenville for somebody that will give me all the saved relatives of the Apostle Paul. Brethren, do you love the conversion of God's elect? Does it move Amen. you? Do you pray for all the contacts we have? Do you pray for the 1,700 people that come into our website after being screened per day? Do you pray for the near 40 that sign up to be Proverbs subscribers per day? Do you live a life that is a light to everyone around you, including in your family? Do you wait for the right moment and share something with, that's true from God's Word with them if they have shown an interest in spiritual things? If they've only shown themselves to be dogs or swine, we leave them alone. And we get along with them on a natural level. And God makes those differences. I don't want us to fail by just explaining these five verses and knowing what Paul's desire was, knowing who Israel is, and knowing what salvation is under consideration. I want us to also be like our brother and be like Aquila and Priscilla, a great evangelistic team that were tent makers by profession. But when they heard Apollos preaching boldly, he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was fervent in spirit. And he was a powerful man, eloquent orator, and they heard him preach, 
knowing only the baptism of John. All he knew was about the baptism of John. It sounds sort of like a Catholic. It sounds sort of like an Arminian, only knowing a part of the truth. It says they took him home, and the two of them, a husband and a wife, sat him down and explained to him the way of God more perfectly. And when they were done with him, they gave him a letter and sent him to the church at Corinth. And when he was come, he mightily convinced the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. I want us to be like that. We cannot be content just knowing the passage. We can be content when we know the passage and we live like the apostle in the passage. God hasn't called you to go out and fulfill the Great Commission like He did Paul. But we want to be ready to give an answer to those that ask. Your pastor has to do the work of an evangelist to fulfill his calling. And we're doing it together. But are you ready? Do you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts? And are you ready to give a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear to those that ask you? May the Lord have mercy upon us. We are so blessed. Amen. Amen. Amen.